0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Last week on the program, we uh, we talked about the potential deal between Stelco and Bedrock and a number of other people, and we had uh, hoped, I guess, like a lot of other people, that maybe, maybe we saw a light at the end of the tunnel and this thing was coming to some sort of a conclusion. Uh, however, when we talked with Gary Howe from uh, Local 1005 here in Hamilton, uh, he told us that both uh, he and, uh, of course, Bill Ferguson at 8782 out in uh, Natico are not on side with this, and uh, so we have to wonder what's happening and what are the ramifications of signing the deal or not signing the deal. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, of course business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. He joins us here in studio. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you Bill. You look like you're in summer mode already. I I am. I am. After this weekend, I have to be in summer mode now. Well, I'm I'm with you too, psychologically, anyway. Uh, First of all, before we get into the reaction of the two unions involved in this, uh, give me your your overview on on the story from last week with Bedrock and and Stelco, which we now call Stelco. It used to still be U.S. Steel Canada. Where are they, and, and, and is this good news or bad news. Right. Well, we're coming, we're coming to a key decision point later this week.
2: The various creditors who are owed money are going to vote on a proposal to settle. Now, just to recap where we are, uh, Bedrock has already spoken to the Ontario government. The Ontario government has found a way forward that they can agree on. They have decided to put this land in a land trust, so that issue around environmental concerns is being dealt with that way. Uh, They've now met with um, U.S. Steel in the United States, and they're happy with the deal so far. Uh, They met with the salaried workers and pensioners, and they have a deal there. What they don't have is a deal, a, a collective agreement, with either of the two locals, the one in Hamilton or the one in Nanticoke, but they're supposed to have a vote. With the creditors later this week. I'm going to say to you because I think uh, U.S. Steel's weight in those creditors is so strong that it will be passed. And this will then go to the judge to say, look, we now have a way forward, judge, and what will the judge do? Uh, many people are worried that he would impose a settlement upon the unions. I don't think he will do that, but I think he would say, look, if we've got every other piece of this puzzle together, union, and you're the odd person out, Let's see if we can find some way, maybe binding arbitration or something, to find some way forward for you to sign on. And then this company, like the Phoenix, can emerge from
1: bankruptcy protection and be its own standalone company. There were a lot of skeptics uh, back uh, when these negotiations started and the court-ordered uh, uh, proceedings were going on that this, te- this company is never going to get off its feet again, and, and, or on its feet again, rather, and, and start to rise. Uh, are you more optimistic now than you mm-hmm. were two, three years ago?
2: Absolutely. So I would have been one of those that were worried because there just did not seem to be any white knight to come in riding over the hill, and that this company, on its own, just didn't seem to be sustainable. Now, a couple of things have happened. So the last quarter of 2016, uh, ended December 31st, the company actually was profitable. Not hugely so, but profitable. So that was a step towards sustainability, but I just didn't feel that that was enough profit to sustain the venture through some bumpy times. There's always going to be bumpy times in primary metals. Mm -hmm. They needed a white knight. And the only white knight is Bedrock. But Bedrock, to their credit, have found ways to get all these different people to sign on board. So right now, I'm feeling like 75%. Now, if the unions don't sign on and draw a line in the sand, I I guess my my worry here is, since there's nobody else warming up in the bullpen, what's their alternative suggestion to Bedrock? Bedrock, having called them a bit of a white knight, is not completely a white knight because bedrock does not make steel for a living. That's what would really give me a little more confidence. Bedrock is like a house flipping organization. They buy a house that's a bit distressed, make it a little better and flip it to somebody else when the market improves. And that's really the game plan here. Bedrock will... Uh, take over Stelco, improve its fortunes, make it work a little better. But when steel starts to pick up as an industry, which is maybe in two or three years, then they'll flip it to somebody else, just like happened a decade ago with Appaloosa Capital coming in and then flipping it to U.S. Steel. It's a vicious cycle at the moment. And again, I know this is what drives the union crazy. They want guarantees that this will never, ever happen again. Well, you just can't get guarantees in business.
1: Yeah, when I talked to Gary Howe from uh, 1005 last week, uh, and, and he expressed his, his concerns, and, and many of them same concerns that we've been talking about for years, and, and they've been talking about for years. But he seemed to intimate, though, Marvin, that he'd like to see them open this up again and bring in other people to perhaps get in on the bidding. And and he referenced Dal Goma's situation once again. They were already dismissed by the court. Is, is that even likely to happen? Uh, likely. So, you know... <laughs> The great thing about the law is
2: that it is a bit dynamic in the way it goes. Where's the judge coming from in all this? The judge wants to end creditor protection and wants either this company to stand on its two feet, or if it can't stand on its two feet, then let's sell it for 20 cents on the dollar, wrap it up, and end this whole thing. And one could even debate today whether the last round of creditor protection actually left us better off than we were before. What if Stelco had died 10 years ago and we wrote it all off? Would, Would this city be better off than going through the soap opera we've gone through over the last four or five years? So could the judge do this? Yes. I think anything's possible. But even if you open it up to more bidding, there's no guarantee anyone's going to bid. In other words, it's like putting out a welcome mat and saying, well, I'm, I'm more than happy to host people at my home, but just because you put a welcome mat out doesn't mean anyone's going to come knocking at your door. They had a chance to come knocking, and they stayed away. The only company that seemed interested in this was the, was the Indian company, and it um, – it just didn't have any significant resources to put into this. At least Bedrock is prepared to invest um, billions of, or at least, well, I think, $1 billion, maybe $2 billion into this organization. They're a company of substance. The other deal that was being
1: talked about just didn't seem to have any substance to it. Well, I got two questions about that then. So clearly, it doesn't seem as if they're going to reopen negotiations. But the other element to this is is you just described the scenario bedrock holding onto this company for three, four, five years, whatever it's going to be, then start looking for buyers. If nobody except that Indian company was kicking the tires this time, who's going to be here in five years? It's not like there's going to be any new steel producers coming on board. Yeah. So
2: if I can, and I hate to go back to go forward, so what happened a decade ago? We had a situation where the steel industry suddenly got hot again. Everybody and his brother was demanding steel. And U.S. Steel, taking a look at its plants, were operating at nearly 100% capacity, and they said, my gosh, if we could add more capacity, we could sell even more steel. But to begin to build a plant, get the environmental assessments and approvals, that'll take 10 years and we'll miss the crest of this of this wave. So, oh, I've got a great idea. Why don't we just pick up a company already in the market? And so they bought uh, uh, Stelco at the time. And I know people are going to disagree with me, but I truly, honestly believe that U.S. Steel had the intention of producing large quantities of steel when they acquired it in 2007, having no idea that in 2008 we'd be heading into this deep recession. So we went from a, a market that had uh, no extra capacity, and so if I was an existing producer, I needed capacity, and down the road again in, in Nanticoke is a state-of-the-art steel making facility made great sense to buy it. Unfortunately, the market turned on a dime. <clears throat> that also tells you something about primary metals. When it's good, it can be really, really good, and then when it suddenly goes south, it goes really, really south. Uh, I think it's possible. Again, why do I think it's possible the steel industry can come back? You've got Trump talking about a trillion dollar infrastructure investment. You've got the federal government here talking about, was it $110 billion over 10 years? You've even got the provincial government talking about this. All of these investments in infrastructure require steel, uh, Donald Trump says he wants buy American, hire American. Well, Bedrock's an American company, so if they own a Canadian company, and I think they'll probably qualify for all this. Will they? Uh, because I, I you,
1: they we raised that question because let's not forget, uh, the Obama administration adopted a buy American policy to try to crawl out of that recession as well. But they gave in to the U.S. steel situation, and you, and steel from here did flow in there because they said, okay, technically, it's it's American owned. Uh, that was then, this is now. Uh, is, is is Trump going to sh- be that flexible? <laughs> well, my problem with Trump is I, I don't know uh, whether he's going to be flexible
2: and then whether or not his policies, as we've already seen with Donald Trump, his bluster is a lot different than sometimes what gets implemented uh, underneath him. But I, all I'm saying is I think there's a good chance that the steel industry itself is going to improve and and it is possible. This is why Bedrock's doing this. This is their gamble. If they take over this company as it is, I don't see this improving their portfolio or generating enough profit to make Bedrock a happy company. But they don't need to make profit on a day-to-day basis if they can get the capital gains of flipping this in a few years for a lot more than they spent today. And that's that's
1: their gamble. They must feel they, there can be a market down the road when it improves. One of the uh, problems I think that the union is facing right now, or at least in their eyes anyway, uh, is this idea that you just alluded to, that, in fact, uh, Stelco is making money now, albeit not a whole lot. Their contention is still that, well, okay, guys, you're making money. You have to make the pension fund whole now. You've got the capability of doing that. And I guess when you look at the dollar figure, I guess, yeah, they do. Uh, but the court doesn't seem to want to look at it that way. Haven't they already made a determination about right. where the pensioners stand in the in the pecking order here? Right. So a couple of things on this. The issue that the union keeps
2: bringing up is what's called working capital. The company is sitting on $320 million of working capital. Therefore, you did not have to suspend the post-retirement benefits, and you could put money, in. you can't top it up because the way I understand it, the deficit in the pension fund is $850 million, so $320 does not negate, but you can put a dent in it. Yeah. And they said, so why aren't you doing that? And the answer is, unfortunately, in steelmaking, you need to have a lot of working capital. Working capital is money that you have tied up in things like raw material inventory, um, work in progress, stuff that's sitting in the barn before you sell it, and it often takes you know, six months to do this. You need a lot of working capital. If they dispersed all their working capital to these things, then they'd have to replace it by going out and borrowing money. And again, the court said, we don't want you doing that because borrowing money is going to increase your debt. You're already in trouble because you've got too much debt. So that's why they agreed to suspend the post-retirement benefits to preserve the working capital. And this is especially acute during the winter months because what you have to do if you're a steelmaking company like we have here, uh, either ArcelorMittal, DeFasco, or, or Stelco, you have to bring your raw materials in by November because the Great Lakes freeze over, and so you've got to have enough coal and enough iron ore or what have you to allow you to make steel for four or five months before the Great Lakes thaw and you can start getting the boats back on there. So I I think it's just um, maybe a misunderstanding of what working capital is. It's not really cash in the bank sitting there doing nothing. It is helping to finance the operations of the company. And if you reduce that, then you make the company less viable as it stands. But they have a valid concern. The way forward it seems for the pensioners today that everyone's agreed in is the land trust. So uh, two things that's going to make this company more sellable down the road. Uh, uh, Bedrock has got the environmental issues off its back by creating a land trust. This is going to be provincially um, I guess managed. I I was going to use the word owned, but maybe owned is the wrong word, but managed anyway. So if there's some dirty land there that needs to be cleaned up, well that's not going to be uh, Bedrock's problem. It's not going to be Stelco's problem. It is now going to be us. (coughs) So they freed themselves up from that uh, concern. They lease only the land that they need. Now, this is, oddly enough, great news for the city of Hamilton, because a lot of this land was sitting there terribly underused. If we can find good uses for the land, we reestablish a tax base. We actually can reestablish some employment. My fear, and this has been uh, uh, Mayor Eisenberger's fear, is that the land trust is only going to go to whoever waives a few dollars. So if we build a lot of warehouses down there, okay, that's better than nothing at all, but that's not a lot of employment. So he would like to see the city have a bit more of a hand in the redevelopment of the land to make sure it's
1: good, intensive use that can create some employment. So if, if the Ontario government are going to be the stewards of that land, uh and, and they just work on a first come first serve basis. So I mean, that, that could be counterproductive. Right. It, does Hamilton have a, a an opportunity or do they have a right to be at the table to say, wait a second, we'll determine who's going to use that land? Right. So
2: the the key question in my mind is then who is who's running the trust, who's on the board of the trust? And is it something like say the police board where you've got three provincial appointees and three city appointees or something like that? Then I think the city should be a member of that land trust board. Um Uh, Again, the interesting question might be at some point if someone's got cash that can help the pensioners but maybe doesn't create the jobs the city wants, which way do you tilt on those issues? But what a delightful issue to have, frankly, that we'd have people debating those merits. Uh, uh, But I haven't seen the legal agreement on forming the land trust, so I just don't know who's going to be stewarding that for
1: us. They uh, owe back taxes. I think it's in in the neighborhood, something like $9 million uh, right now. Uh, once the, the dust settles on this, uh, let's assume the settlement is going to be happening, uh, does the city get their money?
2: Yeah. So, um, remember they suspended three things about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. They said uh, you're not going to pay taxes to either the city of Hamilton or Haldin, uh, Haldeman, I think it's the county of Haldeman. Uh, you're not going to pay post-retirement benefits f- for this period of time, and you don't have to put any top-up payments into the pension plan. Uh, with the city, the city was very concerned because, you know, uh, the money that they get from Stelco is not an insignificant amount of their overall budget. It's 1% to 2% of their overall operating budget. What the judge said to them at the time was accrue, accrue the money that's been owing to you, and then at the end— ask for it at this point. And what Bedrock has said is if this deal goes forward, they're going to pay uh, to basically clear the lien, so to speak. So these back taxes have been accrued. A lien has been attached to the organization. And that would mean for the city of Hamilton, nine and a half million dollars. It wouldn't be quite that much for Haldeman, but I'm sure it'd be measured on the order of four to five million dollars. And in a way, I'm going to call it a windfall because there were certainly a lot of people thinking we're never, ever going to see this money. It, it does mean that they were a little short the last two budget years. They're going to have more in this budget year. But what a what a wonderful thing to have happen. So the city's whole now. Does the same thing happen with the post-retirement benefits? No, we can't retroactively go back. So if you've been buying drugs over the last year, oh, can I get reimbursed now? Not going to happen. And in fact, it appears the deal that Bedrock's put forward is that the post-retirement benefits would continue, but at around 70%. Now, what does that mean? Um, It seems that the drug formulary, the number of drugs that, for instance, would be covered, would be reduced by 30%. Don't know which ones would be affected and how. I I would think, for instance, the basic diabetic medications would be covered, Mm -hmm. but if you needed something a little more... um, rare on a cancer side, maybe it wouldn't be covered. And that's another question that's going to have to be put to the union, is 70% of the post-retirement benefits better than 0%, which is what we've got right now.
1: Which is going to be the discussion that's going to be happening at union meetings at both 1005 and 8782 at this stage right now, because it appears on the surface, Marvin, as if those two unions are the only sticking points right now. If they come on side, are we close to a deal then? Absolutely. So Bedrock, I'm going to give it this way, I'm going to say with credit,
2: they have decided what was the easiest things to do and they've done them first. And they've isolated the unions at this point to put them in the point of saying, either say yes and this company emerges and we've got some sweetness and light, or if you're going to be a stick in the mud about this, this whole thing could fall apart and we could have a a, a sale. That's why I'm saying it's 75% that Stelco will emerge, but if the unions take a hard line we could still be in a situation where the company is declared bankrupt.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 Noon on AM 900
1: CHML. City Council will debate the uh, LRT issue once again this coming Wednesday. Another one of their meetings, which ought to be a wonderful event, I'm sure. You know, the, there's, there's so much love and, and, and understanding going on about this LRT file. Uh, but uh, a lot of folks in the community are starting to, to get into this, and well, many of them have been there right from the get go on both sides of it. Uh, but as this debate rages about LRT right now, and the delayed vote once again uh, that we think might take place now on this coming Wednesday, uh, Harry Stinson from Stinson Developments uh, has written a letter to Hamilton City Council. have have so many others uh, to talk about concerns and the impact that this is going to have on community. And uh, we brought Harry uh, back into the studio. It's been a long time since we've had you in here. Thanks for coming in here today. Thank you, Bill. Before Hey, before we get into the LRT thing, a little update on, on what Harry Stinson is doing these days. I just drove by uh, what... Uh, many people think is one of the great projects in the city, of course, was the old Stinson School that you guys had and We were just by there on the weekend and uh, looking fabulous. Uh, and you said at the time that these things are catalysts uh, for redevelopment. And I said, yeah, well, that will be great if it happens. I'm looking at how that whole neighborhood now is starting to rejuvenate. And,
3: and, and you were really the spark for that. Uh, it was a steep hill and a long one. But, <laughs> yes, I mean, when we bought the school, nobody else really wanted it, which I found astonishing. And I also bought some houses across the street. Simply because you know, might as well ride your own coattails. <laughs> they were bought for two and a quarter and they were sold for 740 and 765 Wow. Right across the street. Now, yes, we fixed them up, but that sort of number in the neighborhood would never have been heard of before. And it's, it's amazing the impact it's had. I mean, when, when it, the neighborhood starts to change, even people who are there, it doesn't take new people, it just takes the locals saying, you know, it's worth fixing myself, my place up. And you can see it all is happening now around Gibson School, too. Prices have gone considerably up, and I know there's the gentrification word, and it's terrible, but it brings in a pride of the neighborhood. And we could never have sold the units there to the same. Now we're selling them at three, four, five hundred thousand dollars 500000 in that building, uh, in the old Gibson School.
1: And that's, that's the thing, just to go back to Stinson for a second, that I found interesting about this because I knew about the properties across the street uh, that you own. But I'm seeing it happening on side streets, on Grand yes. Avenue and other streets. People are saying, even if they're not thinking of moving, I, from what I'm told, they, they just think, you know what, everybody else is cleaning up here. Maybe I can do the same sort of thing. And, and really, it brings the whole neighborhood up.
3: And then people drive around in the area. Now what I think is really, I think, a positive thing for the city, and this is, I suppose, goes into the LRT a bit. Yeah, well, let's get into that. it brings people downtown, surely out of curiosity, and they start driving around the streets and saying, oh, I haven't been downtown for a while, but actually this is quite fascinating. I never realized the evolution in the downtown core. And and it, you need, it, whether people are suburban or downtowners, if the downtown core isn't, Prospering and dynamic, the city is going to flounder economically. The core, whether it's industrial, commercial, the core has to have life to it and have to have density, and that's really starting to happen now. Which is, I know that's been part of the LRT debate, but it's it's very true. It, it's psychological.
1: What's? Give me your perspective on this because you've worked in, in in different communities. You've seen how. Elected officials respond. You've seen how citizenry respond to some of these things. <laughs> give, give me your read on what you've seen happening with this debate with LRT.
3: Well, I don't think the city should flag. language too when you much. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's too early for me to get hysterical. Um, but I I've worked in Toronto. I'm working in Buffalo a lot now too. And you know, municipal politics is really not that different city to city. It does get a little comical at times. Um, but the problem with this particular debate. Is that it really has become symbolic of sort of the the forces that maybe portray themselves as the future of the city, and those that and and it became alarmingly apparent in the poll that was done, is that there's sort of an age division of you know those who are in the older bracket are saying you know I'm not sure what benefit it has for me, and I can understand that visually it's not visually in front of you has the impact. But the city really has a certain future to it, and those that who have more the downtown and more than with the new people, of the city and the younger uh, demographic are saying, you know, this is important symbolically to me. And if it hap- if it gets derailed, it's an automatic term. But if it gets derailed, uh, it's going to cause a lot of people to stop and think, and and it's causing me to stop and think.
1: Let me ask you about the Buffalo situation because I I knew you were doing some work there, and and I want to talk about. Uh, how the LRT that's been installed in Buffalo some years ago now has started to have an impact cuz i got to tell you when this whole thing started here in Hamilton uh Rebecca and i had just been in Buffalo we spent a couple go to sabers games or something and, you know we'd usually stay overnight and have dinner there and go to the game and then leave the next day so and it's right downstairs, the Hyatt Hotel, which is right downtown Buffalo, which is right on the LRT line. Yes. and and I, I mentioned at the time I said, you know, I'm not so sure about the economic uplift because you know it apparently had been there for a couple of years and it wasn't much happening there. It wasn't well done at the B installation, but actually. now look at it, there is there's hubs there's yes. development going on there's uh, people like you are starting to invest in, and take over some of those old buildings building on empty lots now it is starting to happen and it's all happening right along the, along LRT, the line. LRT line
3: and it's, it's it's interesting the mistake they made there is it was totally LRT on main street yeah. for a few blocks and that was not a, a success but they're now changing that so you can drive along there and the impact has been striking and Just the whole development along Maine, it's to Roswell Medical Center up yeah. to the university. It, the similarities are, are quite intriguing between Hamilton and Buffalo. Healthcare and education are, are driving forces of the economy, and to those, both of those fields, the LRT in that case or the train, you want to whatever you want to call it, has been critical right from the waterfront out to the university.
1: Well, the hotel that I just referenced, the Hyatt, uh, yes. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he just recently purchased it and 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 put, I guess, a few million dollars Snyder. into rent. Yeah. Put yep. a few million dollars into renovations and then because you looked at that hotel and you figured who would invest in a place like that? It's in the middle of nowhere, kind of because the rest of the area is all run down. And that was a catalyst. Now you're starting to see development all around that hotel and all the way down yes. from there to the downtown core, right to the
3: arena. Well, I'm, I'm just buying a hotel right by the arena right now. There you go. So, you know, it, and, and it's fascinating the change. There's so many neat buildings in Buffalo. There's a lot of similarities between the
1: cities. Sure. Oh, they I mean, we've known that for years. People from Hamilton have always uh, first of all, I got family, relatives that lived down there for many many years, so we go back and forth all the time and it was always interesting to see uh the, the similarities between the two cities and 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 we could learn from that too. And and I guess one of the messages for that Harry is is when I looked at that and I had my skepticism about the Buffalo LRT system, uh, it's it's let's go into this with our eyes wide open. In other words, the day the first train runs, if we do get this one going here, <laughs> don't expect there to be this huge economic uplift and to see all this construction. It happens over time, but it's already started because people like you and other developers are already buying land and already talking about proposals along the
3: proposed line. Yeah, and, and it's, frankly, we took it for granted. And I think this is in the last few weeks, especially the last week, people suddenly, holy cow, I thought this was going to happen. I did not realize that it's not a slam dunk, it's not a done deal. And that is scary. When you're making multi-million dollar investments assuming, well, there's gonna be LRT along there, but we tell it for the last few years, we've been telling people coming into the site offices. Now we're developing you know, the Cannon Knitting Mill, which is downtown central in the Gibson School, out east end somewhat. Uh, and now we feel a little, uh you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. You, you put things on hold. Who's buying your stuff? You know, frankly, it's people from outside of Hamilton still. But interestingly now, there's a lot more. It used to be just Toronto. Now we're seeing a lot more Oakville, Burlington, and Perimeter people. They're moving to the downtown core. Hamilton has now become an acceptable you know, possibility. It was not an option until recently.
1: Well, you remember, even when you were doing your stuff in Toronto, Harry, the the reputation of Hamilton was lunch bucket town, yeah. and and uh, you know, and, and some people look at that with pride. But in other words, there's not much else going on there. It's it's a factory town, and that's all there is. And, and great, I you know, that's no disrespect to people that work in factories, uh, but but that was the reputation, and that was the, the 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 perception that people had of this city. Clearly, that's changing, and
3: and it was dangerous because when the factories are in the news, and of course, being Stelco and Defasco being the names, when the factories are in the news in a bad way. And the city says, that's what we are. Well, the city, therefore, you know, goes down with the ship on that well, in and, terms of its And it almost happened here. It yes? almost
1: happened. You know, when, when Firestone and Procter and & Gamble and International Harvester and all these others, uh, you know, left Burlington Street, uh, you know, at that time, I think 60% of the tax base here was covered by commercial and industrial. Uh, now it's about 85% residential. So, I mean, you know, we, we've put ourselves in that pickle by being a one-trick pony. We've divested ourselves. But why is it that... People outside the city seem to understand there's something pretty cool going on here. People inside the city still
3: have this skepticism. That, uh, I, I don't know. It is frustrating. It seems we have to do our, our most difficult sales job on Hamiltonians <laughs> coming into the office. It's people come, you know, When I started working here years ago, and I was trying to get the Connaught project going, yeah. and, and the Toronto National Post did a little article, what's Stinson doing in Hamilton? And there was a picture that accompanied it of the buildings across from uh, the Connaught. And it was, you know, those those old stores that, the, you know, the, the check cashing <laughs> shops and, and pretty tacky looking. Sure. So there's this big picture in the front of the National Post. And I got two responses from people who knew me. Saying, oh, I saw the article. Well, the people in Hamilton say, oh, my God, why would they take that picture of those? Oh, I will never live this down. It's a terrible reputation for the community, these horrible pictures. The people in Toronto would say, those buildings are pretty cool looking. How much would one of those buildings be? You know, it was a Different glass empty half full type of perspective on it. And this is I think goes to the heart of the debate is you know, it's the future of the city. It isn't just getting on the transit because the darn thing isn't gonna run for years to come. It'll be five, six, seven years, whatever, normally optimistic predictions. It's in the future. And this is sending a message, I think, to people.
1: Some of the people in council that, that seem to be skeptical about this or are downright opposed to it have, have suggested uh, in their comments over the last little while, Harry, that yeah, there has been a great huge economic uplift, and that's great for the city. But that'll continue without. No, it RT. will not. Do not. You, take you it addressed further. that Absolutely in the note you not. sent to councilors. Talk to me about
3: that. Absolutely not. I mean, we're taking for granted that this boom and and coming from the Toronto area and coming even from Buffalo now, the boom is a lot smaller than it's portrayed to be. I mean, the same buildings are, are trotted out over and over again. Oh, look what's happening in downtown. There aren't a lot of players. I mean, you could make a list of the people who are major developers or doing things in Hamilton, and if it cut past six, seven, eight people, I'd be surprised. I mean, Darko's obviously a huge player. You know, Steve has been doing some fascinating buildings, we're doing some buildings. But go a little further beyond that, how many people are actually building? There's a lot of talking but there hasn't really been the boom and a lot of people are holding their powder right now just well, waiting
1: and and it's a numbers game and that's why when i read your letter that uh, that you've circulated to city councilors it, it, it to me was eye opening and i hope it is to the councilors as well and i'm not suggesting hey i want you to change your vote or anything else i just i think they have to look at the perspective that you're giving you're a guy who's in the game uh you know you're not this is there's nothing there's no politics in the, in this as far as you're concerned you're simply saying been there done that i've seen this happen in other cities and, and people like yourself and other investors around here are going to look at this and say, if it's not happening here, I'm pulling up and going someplace else. This is not like Brooklyn where all of a sudden everybody wants to rush in and, and be a part of that rejuvenation. No, we're, the, we're, know,
3: we're, we're, we're doing well here, but we're still on shaky ground. Yes, and, and a lot of it has relied on the Toronto boom and the prices being so unaffordable. And the steam's going out of that now.
1: Well, even more so now that the provincial government announced these regulations. That's been interesting
3: last week for sure. It's going to have an impact. (laughs) Absolutely. And that will filter down here. And it will filter down here because, you know, for many years people were buying in Hamilton because they get property cheap. I mean, you buy low, rent it out, you couldn't lose on it. And then that sort of tapered out. But two years ago, you know, the bottom fish buyers were no longer fighting the great deals anymore. And then there started to be more and more people moving to actually personally move. They were saying, well, this is an interesting environment. But the prices now have come up from, you know, the 200000 level to three, four, five hundred thousand. 500000 Now the difference is not so radical as one might think. And if Toronto slows down and certain elements like the LRT and Hamilton – are not happening as have been anticipated you, I think you will find this name go out of it
1: this is an important point in in this whole discussion and again one that I don't think is has been talked very much about in in city council in in their debates anyway is the fact that some people are just thinking, well, by osmosis, as long as Toronto's hot, then we're just going to get the spillover and it's yeah. going to be great. But <laughs> Don't uh, count on it. And, and you're suggesting in the letter that you send to councillors, you're suggesting, no, we've got to remain competitive. In other words, there is going to be a downturn. You've been in this well, game I'm, a long time. I'm and there are peaks, <laughs> peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. I was right?
3: around in the 70s and 80s when, you know, there were cycles. And pe- how many years has it been now of, of boom times in, in Toronto? And there's a lot of people in the business now who know no different. It's just it just flowed along. And Hamilton the last few years has started to float along a little, take itself for granted. Well, the other thing that concerns me a bit is uh, this whole issue of, oh, don't worry. If we don't do it, the province will still give us the money or maybe some money. Don't worry about it. Well, you know, if one is truly a steward of the taxpayer dollar and looking out for it, that's playing a pretty scary game of chicken. Because nobody at the province level has said, "Don't worry, we'll do part." They've all said consistently. I you don't know, read my lips. Is unfortunately associated with the broken promise, but they've said consistently, you know, it isn't happening. It's not going to be LRT or no. And yet people are being told, "Ah, don't worry, it'll still happen." If that doesn't happen, those poll numbers of you know, but they're going to be retroactive and they won't mean anything anymore. People can say, "Yeah, that was a bad call." And those that are saying, don't worry about it, they may find themselves with some pretty awkward explaining to do.
1: We had a situation when the expressway debate was, was raging here, and this is going back into the, well, it started in the 50s. A lot of people bought land up on Stony Creek Mountain yes. uh, because they said, hey, that, you know, this is this is going to be the new hot spot. That sat empty for God knows how many generations. Uh, well, I, and, I, and a lot of, because remember, the, it, it yep. dragged on and dragged on, and then we had one provincial government that canceled the funding for the, the Red Hill part of it. Uh, and a lot of people bailed. And, and you know, th- that stuff was sitting there. Uh, it wasn't until they actually started to build the road that all of a sudden investment opportunities started to come along and interest started to peak once again on that. The thing I'm concerned about with ha- what's happening with Hamilton, with condos and with other development and with investment from people like you and others, is if you say no to this project, to lrt does that take the air out of the balloon does that all of a sudden send a message to people in your business that maybe hamilton's not as visionary maybe it's not the hot spot that we thought yeah, it was i'm afraid
3: it does and and it's not logical and you know you can but there's a study to prove anything so but it not lot it, it's it, it really just sends a message that we really aren't with the program and and the problem with 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 the transportation analysis is like, oh i don't just use buses or more buses the reality is, it's politically incorrect to say it, but the reality is buses is a low-end form of transit and the millennials and the middle class, anybody who can afford anything but a bus are not going to take the bus. It is just not a fashionable form of transportation. LRT crosses all demographics. And it isn't a question of, will it get from one end of the city to the other and, you know, in 18 minutes or 17.3 minutes? It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a very comfortable and convenient form of Intercity transfer, not so the person in the in in the suburbs won't use it that much, but if people in the downtown don't have to use their cars, those people in the suburbs can get through downtown a lot (laughs) faster. You know, it's cars on the road, and the LRT makes a huge difference in that sense, and it is totally psychological.
1: It is, and the the business case that you know people in Dundas and Stony Creek and, and Binbrook and Glanbrook and all these other places, even Ancaster, talked to some folks up in our neck of the woods over the weekend about this, and they were, well, I don't, what's in it for me? It's <laughs> it's all about tax revenue. Every one of these people that that have that same question or that same comment about this always come back, Harry, and they say, I I want them to lower my taxes. Well, Well, no no government, no municipal government is simply going to say, by the way, I'm going to give you a 20% reduction in your property taxes. No problem. But they can help. By increasing the tax revenue that comes in from business and industry, and that takes the pressure off municipal taxes. That's the way to do this. Nobody seems to want them to do it. Lower my taxes, but don't taxes, do it that way. But
3: where are you going to get the money? Yeah. And I'll tell you where the money comes from. I mean, use the two examples just of the two schools we're working on, Gibson sure. and, and Gibson. Now, these are properties that have generated for their entire century of history not one penny of taxes. But Let's say they were. The tax bill in, in Gibson right now, which has gone to a commercial level because I didn't buy it from the school board, is around twenty grand a year. When it's completed as a residential project, it will be closer to $300,000 a year.
1: Going to the city? Going to the city. As, a, as opposed to zero?
3: As opposed to zero. And you're not going to get that in the suburbs. So take a parcel of land in the downtown core a parking lot, a little piece of land, and it goes from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. And you don't have to give them a big subsidy, and you don't have to give them a, a steel company tax break, and you don't have to build an expressway to it. It's totally net increased revenue to the city. That is not going to happen in the suburbs, but it's going to help the suburbs. It's this whole mentality of, you know, my end of the boat doesn't have a leak in it, so I'm good. <laughs> you know? Let's <laughs> not patch with mine. You know, the other guy, he doesn't need a patch. All the patches that are in the boat, please.
1: Well, I know that counselors have received this letter. Uh, I hope they read it. I hope they digest it, and I hope they consider that when they uh, have their meeting later on this week. You know,
3: I got to say though, individually, I, I, compared to the cities I've worked in, the councilors here are decent people. I've, I've, I'm not going to scream and yell and say anybody's a dinosaur or wrong. I understand the perspectives, but this needs this needs a real time out and stepping back and saying what is really for the image of the city, for the future of the city, the right thing to do. And, and really, this is.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show,
1: weekdays from 9 to noon
3: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, speaking of hot, well, lows, I guess, as in the case of Toronto Maple Leaf fans, it was a uh, eventful weekend uh, this past weekend for the Stanley Cup playoffs with uh, the Leafs getting eliminated, the Montreal Canadiens getting eliminated, and the Boston Bruins getting eliminated. Uh, and it's changed, uh, I guess, a lot of people's perspective on this. Now, I was really surprised and uh in some ways kind of ticked off about some of the stuff I saw on social media. First of all, the the divisiveness that goes on during hockey playoffs. It's only a game, guys. But uh, the, the, the the feeling they had that, well, now that now that Toronto's gone, or now that Montreal's gone, i got to cheer for another Canadian team. I, I don't buy that. But talk about this with our good friend Scott Radley, the host of the Scott Radley Show, which is heard every weeknight here on 900CHML. And, of course, uh, you read his uh, fabulous prose in the Hamilton Spectator, of course, uh, as well, uh, in the sports pages. How you doing today, Scott?
0: You there? I'm there. You there? ah Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm great. How are you doing?
1: Fabulous, thanks. Uh, your your thoughts first of all about what happened on the ice uh, this past weekend.
0: Well, look, uh, I, we talked about it on my show on uh, the other night. There's only one thing that got in the way of that being arguably one of the best opening rounds that I ever remember seeing because that was up and down the NHL. All those series, they were almost all fantastic series. And if you're watching the Leafs, I mean that was a, that was a great. Series and the canadians and the Senate all it was it was great hockey for me the only downside we're not going to talk about it today is i hate 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 with every fiber of my being the fact that now apparently almost every goal has to be reviewed by referees looking at whether he was offside by a millimeter or if a goalie was touched and all that stuff play the game let the rest call the game but the hockey itself my goodness, the hockey was fantastic. I mean, it really was. You you could not complain if you were a sports fan about the excitement level of the playoffs in that first round. The rest of them are going. The rest of the rounds are going to have a lot to do to try and match that.
1: I, I think so, and and I agree with your point about the refereeing. Um, you know, w- when when you get a call going against you, and, and and as a Bruins fan, that happened two or three times. You know, they had a goal called back in the Ottawa series. A couple of goals, I guess, called back. You always want to say, ah, oh, they should have replay. Uh, I, I think they're really, really going to the well far too often, and it's really killing the rhythm of the game.
0: Well, look, it's not only you're right about that; it absolutely is. You, you score a goal, and you don't actually know if you've scored a goal because then someone's going to look at an iPad, and then you're going to challenge it, and then they're going to look at 47 different replays to see if he's one millimeter offside. But here's my other problem with it, Bill: it's a it's an unbalanced rule. Because the rule says that if you you can re, let's say that Bill's Bruins get scored on, so Bill the coach can look at the replay and have them say, no, the other team was offside, and therefore the goal, even if it's forty five seconds later, gets eliminated. But what happens if Bill's Bruins are on a two on one, and you got and you could have scored a goal, but the ref actually the linesman accidentally blows you offside, and you weren't offside, you don't get to replay that play or something so all we're doing is taking goals away in the NHL if they blow it the other way there's no recompense for it so the whole thing to me it kind of defeats I know that offside is a cut and dry hard and fast rule I understand that well you'd think it is but look at there's other rules like that so how many times have we had an icing in the modern NHL that leads to a face-off in a team's end that leads to a goal. Icing has become a huge issue, and face-offs in offensive zones have become a huge issue. Why could you not, if there was an icing, why could you not ha- ask for a replay to see if, in fact, the puck was shot at center? Because sometimes it looks often; it looks like they're a centimeter or a foot behind the line when they shoot it in. Surely that should be replayable then, correct? Yeah. on and on and on. There are so many things... That you could say could be replayed. This one particular thing with the offside, it makes no sense to me. The thing, the, the replay in the Bruins game. You're a Bruins fan. I'm sure you were throwing stuff at the TV when they called goalie interference on the overtime goal. That was a perfectly good goal. Yeah,
1: yeah. There was no interference there.
0: There was no interference, and yet, and, and guarantee you, I would I would bet every dime that I own, Bill, that if that game had been played at Boston Garden, that is not goalie interference. That's a good goal. Guarantee you the refs don't wave it off if that's in Boston. Anyway, go ahead.
1: Well and we can yeah, I, I just I just think that they're overusing it and I think they're relying on it too much and, and, and I think it's really having an impact on the game. And as a matter of fact, it's almost it's almost like question period of the House of Commons. I I'm getting the sense sometimes that the players are playing to the camera. Uh, you know, and you're starting to see diving again. You're starting to see all sorts of other things that are going on in the game with the intention that, well, when this gets reviewed, it's, uh, goalies are overacting now and anybody comes near the blue paint. They're falling on the and flopping like a dew worm. It, it just it's, it's really changed the attitude, I think, of a lot of the players and the way the game is being played now.
0: I, I honestly don't understand if the intent is that we cannot have a wrong call. If the intention is that there will be no more human element, and I'm not arguing for bad refs. I'm not arguing that refs should intentionally blow things, but if we're saying that perfection is the mandate now, perfection is the baseline that we are expecting, why do we have human refs involved at all? Why not just have a number of people sitting in front of a bank of teas in the press box, who and on the scoreboard, there's a red light or there's a green light, and if there's a penalty, they can just blow a horn and put up a flash of red light with the word penalty on the scoreboard. So, I mean, if we're if we want to eliminate any possibility of human error, there is then by definition no reason to have human officials involved in the game. So you're you're, you're looking for it. You're trying to do it both ways. You're trying to keep people involved, but then say, yeah, but you know. We're not really going to lean on you. It's, it's, it's an odd one to me. And baseball you know, is the same thing. Football now is the same thing. Soccer is the same thing. And I wrote this in the paper on Saturday. The thing that I find funniest is of all the calls in all of sports that you would think would be the one that you could have replay do and really make it perfect, it's calling balls and strikes in baseball. You don't need a home plate umpire at all. That's the one. That you could have perfection almost, and it's the one they're fighting hardest against, allowing it to be done. That one, it, the computer can very easily determine if it's a ball or strike, and there's no question.
1: I don't know why they're not going there. Yeah, that's, that's problematic. Listen, uh, First of all, if you were to read the, uh, you know, the stories this morning in, in all the papers, uh, right across the country really, but certainly in the Toronto newspapers, uh, the Leafs have still planned the the Stanley Cup parade, but it's going to be next year. It, it's not this spring. They got the date wrong. It's going to be 2018. They're going to win it all. And and you know what? I, I give the Leafs credit. I mean, you know, they made the playoffs this year. Uh, they've got some bright young talent. But, but I'm just trying to add a, a, a level of sobriety to some of the discussion here. I heard these same comments about the Leafs after they got eliminated by the Bruins in seven games a couple of years ago. They didn't make the playoffs the next year. I mean, nothing is guaranteed in in sports, is it?
0: Nothing is guaranteed at all, Bill. The difference, though, between those Leafs and the current Leafs uh, is a couple-fold, and I think everyone can see that. One is, this is a young group, first of all, so there should be some – if they've shown they can do it now, there's no reason to say they can't do it again because they're just – becoming NHLers and there's a lot of talent there whereas the Leafs of that series four years ago when they lost the Bruins there, there wasn't much there it, it was it was a few players and and of course they lost that series in seven and had a big collapse but um no I I, I think it's um it, it would be ridiculous to say the Leafs are going to win the cup next year or even the year after but they look like for the first time ever in my lifetime, anyway, that they're actually building something. Even go back to the Cliff Fletcher years. Remember the Doug Gilmore trade and Andrew Chuck. Oh, yeah, there? yeah. That was that was more of a we fell into a well and the well was full of gold. I mean, it was a fluke what happened when they did that. That trade with Calgary that got them Gilmore and all those guys came out of nowhere. It was a, it was it was a lucky break basically. And then you can put a couple other pieces together, and you get a bunch of veterans. And that was before the salary cap. Don't forget. But that was a that wasn't a build. That was a, a a good fortune fell upon you. This is this is a little bit different, and this is they're showing patience. And for that reason, I think there is, like everyone else says, I mean, it's not it's not a unique position. I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. The idea that next year is guaranteed to be better. That's 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 a bit of a tougher one, and, and I'm not saying they're not going to be because you saw over the course of this year, William Melander got better and better and better as the season went on. He became a very very good player. Uh, Kapanen, who was with the Marleys most of the year and showed up for the playoffs, uh, looks like a player. There are uh, uh, Anderson and Net was remember he had a terrible start to the year. With oh yeah. And by the end he was strong. So you look and you go this. Pieces here that suggest that next year, if you plug all those pieces in and they play at this level, you will be a better team. The challenge is going to be, how much more can you reasonably expect from Austin Matthews? And I'm not being negative. I'm saying he scored 40 goals this year. Could, can you reasonably expect that a sophomore in the NHL is going to score more than 40? Can, can you expect he's even going to score 40 again? And, you know, Mitch Marner had a terrific year. Can you expect that kind of year again from Mitch Marner? So there's questions, but there's certainly optimism. There is reason to believe this team is not like the Leaf teams of the last 20 or 25 years that were a flash in the pan, the, the few good Leaf teams. There's reason to believe this team is heading towards something very positive. Um, the challenge is, this is really, I'm not counting the team from four years ago that lost to your Bruins, this is really the first good Leaf team of the cap era. And that changes things, because don't forget, back in the day, if you were with the Leafs and you showed some signs that you could win, there was no salary cap, and the Leafs had the biggest bankroll in the league. They could go out and just blow their brains out and bring in whoever they wanted. They would be veterans, they'd be old, they'd be over the hill, but we could, we're yeah, fine, it's just money. Now you've got to be wise. And so you look at this team and you go, we could go out. We need some defensemen. We need some solid defensemen. That that was evident, uh, if you're the least brass, that was evident from this series. But whatever we spend on defensemen, in the free agent market, we have to keep enough room under the salary cap when all these rookies become when they get their next contract, we have to be able to keep these guys. We don't want to have to start cutting them loose because we've gotten tied up to the cap and we don't have wiggle room. So- yeah,
1: and, and a lot of people that are suggesting these guys are going to be there forever and a day uh, don't understand that reality. Um You know, Austin Matthews is a great young hockey player, but he's an American, and he may have affiliations in in other cities, and you know, may want to go home. We've we've heard these things before. Listen, I got a couple of minutes left. I got to ask you about something else, though, because we see this happen every year now, when when some of the Canadian teams, in this case, most of them, uh, start getting bumped out of the playoffs. I'm time and time again, I'm hearing from fans, well, I guess I have to support Ottawa now, or I guess I have to support Edmonton now, because they're the Canadian teams. What is it that some people seem to still construe that that the challenge for the Stanley Cup every year has some patriotic element to it? This is a profession; these are professionally highly paid professionals. This is a business. Uh, clearly, by the way, that the NHL thumbing their nose at the uh, the Winter Olympics uh, coming up shows mm. you that they have no sense of patriotism at all. It's all about money for them. Why do the fans cling to this? Like, you, well, I'm a Canadian; I have to support a Canadian team. I don't buy that.
0: That's a good question. Although it, you're right, it does happen. I'll tell you this: um, If that follows this year, the Edmonton Oilers are going to have a lot of new fans because there is nobody out of outside of the Ottawa city limits that likes the Ottawa Senators. Certainly not around here. The no, Ottawa that's Senators, that's
1: that's the team we should have received back in the early nineties.
0: They are they generally are perceived, and I think in a lot of ways fairly as an unlikable, uncheerable. Group Their owner whines all the time. Every time something happens to one of their players, the owner wants to call in CSI to figure out whether it was done <laughs> intentionally. and, and the, it, So the Oilers, on the other hand, A, you've got a team that has been in the pits forever. I mean, they've been struggling. People can can feel that. They can understand a fan base that has been suffering. They've got history as well, but they've also got, a, if you've watched any of them, they have an exciting exciting team to watch they are very much like the way the leafs look right now here's the thing about the you know the 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 oilers and the way the leafs played. if you saw any of the st louis minnesota series and i pray you didn't Uh, i watched
1: the game on saturday it was boring
0: it would suck the soul out of you to watch that st louis is that team right now that by and large has a really good goalie who's playing really well but they are protecting, 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 protecting. And then if something opens up, they'll counterattack just to try and get that one goal. And then just, they're horrible to watch. Toronto only scored one goal yesterday, but they were attacking most of the game. They came close. Edmonton is the same. Edmonton is a fun team to watch play. They go forth, they got young guys, they got talent, they got Connor McDavid. Look, they got Darnell Nurse from Hamilton, they got Cam Talbot, who is from Caledonia and now lives in Ancaster. Uh, they're a fun, fun team to watch. I think Edmonton. As long as they last in this thing, are going to earn themselves and win themselves an awful lot of new fans who are not who don't see them a lot because they play late all year long, different time zone. People are suddenly going to see the Oilers and go, "That's what all the fuss is about." That, yeah, you know what? I am. I may end up being an Oilers fan now, as well as as my second team. I may still be a Leafs fan. I may still be a Habs fan. May still be a Bruins fan. But I think I could find myself a spot to be Edmonton as number two.
1: But the league has evolved. I mean, for those fans that say, well, I want to go for the Canadian team. There are no Canadian teams. There are teams that, that play their home games in Canadian cities, seven of them out of the 30, well, what will soon be 31 teams in the league. But that. <laughs> You know, and there was a time when ninety-eight percent of the players in the National Hockey League were Canadian. That's not the case anymore. I, I go back to the. We got about a minute left here. When when the Bruins won the Cup in twenty thirteen, uh, we had a couple of people in the building here that actually were from Vancouver, worked at one of the other stations here in the at the chorus cluster, and they said, "Oh, you got to go for the Canadian team." I said, "There are more Canadians on the Bruins than there are on the Canucks." And what That's are you right. talking about? And and That's if you right. do the breakdown like that, there there are no Canadian teams anymore.
0: I think I, I can't remember. It might have been Pittsburgh, but there was. Uh, one of the teams last year that was in the playoffs—it was an American team that had by far—they were almost entirely Canadian—and so yes, if you're if you're truly going to be going for the Canadian, if if uh, that's capital, uh, sorry, that's a Canadian, not e Canadian. Um, there are teams in the states that would have, would have more Canadian players than any Canadian team does. So it, it is it is an oddity, Bill. You're absolutely right. This is not—they uh, don't have. Um, This is not a national thing right now. This is a National Hockey League thing. But you know what? If that that helps you, if your team is out and you need some guidance to try and figure out who to cheer for, and that's what's going to help you make up your mind, there are worse things, I suppose, (laughs) than deciding you'd like the Stanley Cup to return to Canada for the first time since '93. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.